Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. If ever there was a deep and confusing quagmire in the hunting world, it is that of waterfowl marketing. On this episode, I'm going to help you cut through the hype and the clutter so you can make informed decisions. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the New Hunter's Guide, the podcast and YouTube channel, helping new hunters get started and helping active hunters learn new things. I'm your host, George Kanitas, and today I want to help you navigate the quagmire of waterfowl hunting marketing. Now, you will find marketing hype and craziness in every avenue of hunting, every product vertical you will find this. But I don't think I have seen it anywhere as bad and as deep as it for waterfowl hunting. I'm not sure what it is. I don't know how it got this way. Probably some of you who are waterfowl historians might be able to shed some light on that. But what I can tell you is that the muck and the murk of the hype, false advertising, deceptive advertising, irrelevant flash and dash advertising when it comes to waterfowl hunting is among the worst I have ever seen. And in case you didn't know, I work in the marketing and advertising field. And I have a very low tolerance for hype. I'm also a trained researcher. I have a PhD. And whenever I see claims that are not substantiated by data or even conclusive logical arguments, it drives me crazy. So I am particularly sensitive to just nonsensical marketing claims and ridiculousness. I hate it. I can't stand it. But there's so much of it, it is the norm rather than the exception in the world of waterfowl hunting for whatever reason. And it's not even worth trying to figure out why on this episode. What we just need to talk about is how do you recognize it and what do you do with it? So we're going to start with the first and foremost thing, and that is ammunition. Now, I did an entire YouTube video literally doing nothing but debunking the hype of waterfowl ammunition. I will link to that in the show notes of this episode, newhuntersguide.com. Of course, you can always find it just by going to YouTube and finding the New Hunters Guide channel. I'm not going to rehash all of that here. I did a a pretty in-depth plunge into just this one component. But in short, I have never seen anything in my entire hunting life that has marketing as bad and deceptive and intentionally confusing as with waterfowl hunting ammunition. You talk about people literally just saying anything to put it on a box of ammunition to try to sell something. I cannot even comprehend some of the claims that I've seen. So, of course, you have three main types of waterfowl ammunition, or at least three main metals. You've got steel, you have bismuth, you have tungsten. Simple, easy, it makes sense. Steel is the cheapest, it's also the least dense, you have the least effective range, worst patterning. 
Bismuth is denser than steel. You have more power at range. You have better patterns in general. It is a more effective material. It also costs more. And tungsten is just better of everything. More range, more density, more power, better patterning because you can have smaller pellets and so on. And it just costs a lot more. So what has happened in the waterfowl ammunition marketplace as people have begun to make all sorts of crazy claims when it comes to ammo. Sometimes they do nothing, and they, but they, they make it sound like they do something. So, for example, I have seen heavy steel. Okay, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That is the, the big, bold letters on the box. Heavy steel. Bone crushing. Hits harder. Now, hits harder than what? bone crushing. What does that mean compared to what? You saying others aren't bone crushing? So you look into it. Okay. What is in this so-called heavy steel? It's steel. Straight steel. The same steel that's in the other loads that cost 50% less. There's not another thing in here. It just says the word heavy on the box. And Guys, stuff like this just drives me crazy, but it costs more. And because it's bone crushing and hits harder and nothing is given to quantify anything. You see other things, uh, heavier than steel loads, okay? They'll market it, you know, whatever percent more something, 20% denser, hits 30% harder. And what I find again and again is there's a load. And if you read it real close, you can figure this out. It's 85% steel and 15% bismuth. 85% steel and 15% bismuth. Now, guys, bismuth is better than steel for waterfowl ammo. Better than steel for all ammo, essentially. It is superior material. But it's not that much better. All right. Now, in my ballistics gel testing that I have done, bismuth is penetrating somewhere around 30 to 40% deeper than steel at 40 yards. Somewhere in that ballpark. Velocity, well, actually, no, that's just steel going at much higher velocity, too. If steel can leave the barrel doing two or 300% or excuse me, two or 300 feet per second more than bismuth, and the bismuth still penetrates 35 or 40% deeper at 40 yards. Um, but that's, that's a subject for another day and for that video. But what happens is, if you have 15% bismuth, and the bismuth operates at roughly 40% better than steel, then, you know, what what is... What is 15% that's 40% better? What does that come out to? So if you do some quick math, 15% is roughly one-seventh of 100%. That's not exactly, but I'm just rounding here. So then if you have something that's 40% better that makes up 15% of your load, then if you do the numbers, uh, it's about 6% better for having, the biz for having that bismuth in there. Okay, so your steel, your 85% steel, 15% bismuth turns out giving you an average value improvement, effectiveness improvement on the load of 6%. Okay, so, you know, by having that whole 15% layer of bismuth in there, you have made your shotgun shell 6% better than if it were just pure steel. However, you have made it cost 60% more. So what's happening is these companies, they are just sucking the money out of people and giving them almost nothing back. You know, what is 6% better? It is not enough difference to make a difference. It's almost inconsequential. It could be rounding error once you get into the field. But you're not paying 6% more. If you were just paying 6% more, I wouldn't have an issue. I wouldn't have an argument. I wouldn't care. I'm saying, okay, well, they made this a little better and they're charging a little more. Good, great, grand, wonderful. But they're charging 60% more to make it 6% better. And the marketing claims 
basically that it is going to kill any bird, duck, goose that it hits at, you know, of course, extended range. They're real big about putting that on the box. So this thing's going to reach out there, you know, to some, you know, fantasy range, 80 yards, and just be bone crushing and kill everything in its path. And guys, it's 6% better than cheap steel loads. 6%. You could shoot a few of them and not even know the difference. All right. But this is so common. This happens so much. This happens with across the board. You really need to go watch that video. You know, big example, tungsten. All right. So we've got heavier than lead loads or heavier than steel loads or tungsten loads. Now, tungsten is 18.3 GCC. All right. Grams per cubic centimeter. That's the density. 18.3. And lead is somewhere around uh, 11.6. I didn't, I forgot to look it up, but somewhere around 11.6, almost 12. So tungsten is denser than lead by a lot. It performs better than lead by a lot. Steel, I think, is what, 7.8 or something right around there. Um, or maybe it's 8.6. Either way, it's over double, tungsten's over double the density of steel. So it performs drastically better. And, and it's not a one-to-one -one increase. It's more than a one-to-one -one increase. Because as density goes up, for every, uh, this is not a real number, but this is just an example. For every 10% increase you have in density, you may have a 20% increase in performance. Because the denser the shot, the more energy it retains at all ranges, but it also loses velocity slower, so it holds more velocity, so it's able to hit with more speed and more density at further range. There's a compounding effect. Dent, or excuse me, the denser the material, it gets much, much better. That's why bismuth is more percent increase in effectiveness than it is percent increase in density than versus steel. But when it comes to tungsten, People put tungsten all over the box. People put heavy weight, all these things. And what they're giving you is not pure 18.3 GCC tungsten. They're mixing that tungsten. They're grinding it into a powder often and mixing it with a polymer, a.k.a. plastic. And they are now giving you a pellet that is maybe 40% tungsten, 60% plastic, and it has a density of 12 GCC, just ever so slightly denser than lead. Uh, sometimes they have a density of 10 or 10.5, and it's, it's actually not even as dense as bismuth sometimes, but it's heavier than steel. And what it comes out to is that it's cheap for the companies to produce and they just plaster the word um, tungsten and heavy and denser and stronger and everything on the box until you're like, oh man, this is just like, you know, shooting pure liquid death at these birds. Well, no, a lot of times it's only marginally better than the much, much cheaper loads. But they're, they're, they're charging you a lot more for a little bit more uh, of performance or they're making an alloy they're mixing tungsten and steel or something like that in order to give you an increase in performance and what they're doing is oftentimes you get a slight performance increase for a big cost increase so for example pure tungsten 18.3 gccc costs about ten dollars a shot actually in today's economy it might be more However, another thing they'll do is they'll just give you the 18.3, but they'll give you less and less and less shot, right? So, you know, I've recently bought some turkey loads and they're two ounces of 18 GCC and they are $10 a shot, $9 per round, which is actually cheap going. The Boss Turkey Toms, and I've done a couple videos on them, plan to do more. And they're unbelievable compared to lead, they're outstanding. They're the cheapest tungsten load on the market for turkey ammo. And you're getting two ounces of 18 GCC number nine shot for $9. Well, what you have now is you got people in the waterfowl space. They keep giving you less and less tungsten. So they're going to give you one ounce of tungsten. 
So, you know, what should that cost? If you got two ounces for $9, what's one ounce cost? Now, of course, you got a shell and you got primer, you got a wad, you got all that. So it's not going to just cut the price in half. But they're going to charge you $8 to give you one ounce. Or they're going to they're gonna bring the price down to $7 and give you three quarter of an ounce. And you keep getting a lot less than what you're paying for, but the price is going down. Anytime you see cheap tungsten loads, start asking questions like, why is it cheap? Where are they cutting corners? Is it pure tungsten? Probably not. How much is in there? Probably less than you think. Now, does that mean one ounce is not effective? One ounce can be super effective of number nine shot. Yeah, but you need to pay one ounce prices, not turkey load prices. And so you have this ongoing theme. You have alloys and you have polymers. And at the end of the day, there's just this swindling effect. Um, and every piece of marketing is just just absolutely ridden with, you know, just hyperbole and, and just ah, bone crushing, bird dropping, kills them stone dead. Yeah, well... Anything can kill them stone dead. Depends on where it hits them. Depends on how far they are. Depends on the tide sometimes, it seems. Anything can do it. It depends on that range. But not, I mean, there's nothing you can shoot that's going to kill them stone dead every time because you're not going to hit them in the brain every time and instantaneously put them down. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. But there's this thing where people feel like this ammo is going to be the answer. It's going to make them a better hunter. They'll just start shelling out cash. So what do you need to know? How do you make a better decision? One. You need to understand the metals that you're buying in the ammo. What are you getting? For steel, you pay steel prices. For bismuth, you pay bismuth prices. For tungsten, you pay tungsten prices. For a blend, you better run some math. You better give it some thought. You better look up some, some stuff and try to figure out if that blend is giving you a value relative to what's in that shell and what the components of it really are. A lot of them these days, they won't even put on the box what it's made out of. They will not tell you. Some of them you have to go to the website and sift through fine print on the, from the manufacturer to figure out what's in it. Some of them, I could not find out what was in them for anything. All right, all I know is the box is covered in hyperbole. So you need to think, you need to look into it, you need to research. Now, when it comes to you know quality loads... I have a favorite in every category, pretty much. Um, I think that for steel loads, if you're looking for the best steel loads, not the cheapest, the best. I think that Fast Steel 2.0 may be the, my favorite steel load. I can't say it's the best. I've not tried them all. There are hundreds of different brands. 
But of all the ones I've tried, of all the ones that I've used, of all the ones that I've patterned, the Kent Fast Steel 2.0 number four shot has been my favorite steel load. Um, when I last bought a box of them, I think it was $18 or $20 for a box of 25 So a little less than a dollar a shell. That may have gone up in the last year. Then again, it may have already come down too. I don't know. And based on when you hear this episode, that could vary. Uh, when it comes to bismuth shells, my favorite bismuth load is the Boss Copper Plated Bismuth. I think it is one of, I think it's the best value shell on the market because bismuth performs superior to steel and Boss patented the process for copper plating bismuth. So, um, and I did an entire video on YouTube about what copper plating does or any other plating of shotgun shot. You should go and watch that video on YouTube. Again, I'll link to that in the description of this video. But, um, excuse me, I'll link to that in the show notes of this episode. But copper plating significantly improves performance most of the time under most conditions. It improves pattern. It improves terminal ballistics. It improves penetration and the ability to do damage on the intended target. It doesn't improve it drastically usually, but it is better. So if you take something that's already superior, like bismuth, and then you copper plate it, well, now you have something that's extra better. So I like that one. When it comes to tungsten loads, uh, I think Apex may make the best value waterfowl TSS tungsten shell um, cost per shell, cost per shot. Now, of course, they make different ones with different amounts of tungsten in them and so on. Chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, though, um, that is just outside of your price range, right? If you are newer or new-ish to waterfowl hunting, you're going to be hunting with steel. You might stretch for bismuth, but you're not going to, you're not going up and going to pay five to $15 a shell. You're just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So you've got that. So that's the ammo side. Know your materials. Next, we have the shotgun side. Oh man, waterfowl hunting shotguns. Marketing quagmire. So what makes a shotgun a waterfowl hunting shotgun? All right, well, there's one main thing. Barrel length. 28-inch barrel is the typical customary waterfowl barrel. Why 28 inches? 28 inches supposedly maximizes the powder burn to give you optimal velocity. Uh, apparently for some loads, for heavy loads, you could still get more velocity out to about a 32-inch barrel. But most loads are tuned to give you optimal, maximum effectiveness at a 28-inch barrel. Now, what are you, what are you going to get of a 26-inch barrel? Is that two inches really matter that much? Best as I can tell, that two inches is probably worth about 5%. You drop down to a 24-inch barrel. You might be losing, you know, 10 to 12%. Uh, if you go much lower than that, I think you start to lose too much for waterfowl. But a 28-inch barrel supposedly is, is the best barrel length for waterfowl hunting shotguns. Um, and a lot of people, this is interesting. This is just an extra nugget here. No extra charge for this. For turkey hunting, that doesn't change. But for turkey hunting, standard barrel length is like 18 to 24 inches, which to me is, is counterintuitive, right? It's like, wait a minute. So we're losing power. We're losing effectiveness in a sport that everybody cares for every last iota of power and effectiveness. But for somehow for turkey hunting, shorter barrel is all the rage. Well, the reason is when you're walking through woods and you're trying to swing a gun around or you're sitting in a pop-up blind, 28 inches of barrel is a lot of barrel. And uh, I personally, I don't know, maybe by the time this airs, I'll have done it. But I'm looking at getting a new turkey hunting shotgun just so I can have a shorter barrel. I want to... I wanna, lay down the Mossberg 930 waterfowl that I've been using for turkey hunting and instead pick up something that has a 24-inch barrel versus the 28. 
Because if I'm sitting in a blind, what I found is I can sit as far back as I can sit and still see. And I lift up that shotgun and it is still scraping the mesh or the, or the window area in the blind. And I'm like, this is just too long. And yeah, you'll be sacrificing power. Yeah, you'll be sacrificing some effectiveness. But, you know, I've had times where I couldn't turn and move in a situation because the barrel is just too long. So you have practicality versus power. But don't think for turkey hunting, you know, that a long barrel is going to make you less effective. You're going to have more power. It's just a little bit harder to maneuver. But that's another conversation. So when it comes to waterfowl hunting, if you have a 28-inch barrel, you have a waterfowl shotgun. Boom. Done. Go to the register. Now, there are other features that are desirable in waterfowl shotguns. Um, Specific coatings and things like that that make the the gun more water-resistant, weather-resistant, corrosion-resistant. Because waterfowl hunting shotguns tend to get wet. You're hunting in the rain. You're hunting by water. You're pulling wet ducks out of the water. These guns just get wet. They get muddy. You're in boats sometimes. Sometimes the boat flips over. I have been there. You you drop them in the water. You sit them, lean them up against something. They slide down and fall into the mud. You're just not going to keep a waterfowl shotgun clean or dry. Now, the best way to combat that is just clean it when you come back from hunting, right? I've been doing it for years. I don't have any rust in my gun because I just clean it when it gets wet. But if you had some uh, more weather-resistant properties, corrosion-resistant properties, coatings, like I just recently picked up a Mossberg 940, did a full YouTube video review. Wow, this is like the podcast episode telling you to go watch YouTube, isn't it? I did a full YouTube review on it, did a whole write-up on the website, newhuntersguide.com. Check out the articles and reviews section of the website. And one of the big things I liked about this waterfowl hunting shotgun, the 940, was that it has a chrome line barrel, corrosion-resistant barrel, corrosion-resistant internal, self-draining stock. Those little itty-bitty things... Um, can just help your gun last a little longer, go a little further between cleanings, maybe just give you a little bit more peace of mind that you don't start getting anal retentive when your gun gets wet and you're in the field and you're like, I need to stop hunting and go home and clean it. Now, hold on. It'll be okay. It'll make it till you get home. They don't rust instantly. Um, Now, salt water might be a different story, but for the most part, you're going to be fine. So that's what makes a waterfowl hunting shotgun. Now, what about camo? You know, fancy waterfowl hunting camos are a big deal these days. You know, getting a camo shotgun. Does that matter? Uh, Guys, I'm going to tell you, I don't think it makes much difference. It may make a little bit of difference, but I don't think it makes much difference. Typically, the little bit of black on a shotgun or the brown from a woodstock this is not going to be the thing that if a bird sees it is going to cause surprise and alarm that you need camo up and down the barrel. Now, a lot of people are, are, they'll get camo duct tape or spray paint their gun camo. Hey, that's easy. That's cheap. If that's what you want to do, great. But I don't think it makes a big difference. I just, I think you're, you're, there's many more other things like you having a good blind, like you being brushed in, like you being still, like you having your face covered. These are going to make much more of a difference than having camo on your shotgun. So you've got that. So how do you, you know, how should you pay a lot more for a waterfowl shotgun? No, 28 inch barrels, standard barrel length. You should not pay more. You should not pay a drastic amount more to get something that has the word waterfowl in it. Now, some shotguns do come with, you know, lots of different creature comforts. I talk about a lot of them in that Mossberg 940 review that I did. And, you know, the little things that make that shotgun nicer and and make it a step up over the 930. But that's just general shopping, general shotgunnery. You know, you got different guns at different prices that have different features that do different things for you. But for waterfowl, it's pretty much barrel length is the only thing that makes it a waterfowl shotgun. Now, next thing, fancy blinds. Fancy blinds. 
Oh man, if you watched enough YouTube videos, you would think if I bought that blind, if I got that layout blind, if I got that A-frame blind, if I got that $5,000, you know, build it and assemble it on site once and for all, mount it on pylons and let the brush grow in around it blind, that would make all the difference in the world. Guys, blinds are tools. They're tools. A pop-up blind or a layout blind is no better than one you build or assemble on site. Now, some people say, well, it's a lot less work. You just carry it in and plop it down. Yeah, if carrying a big, you know, blind that's half the size or that's bigger than you, you know, a mile to your spot, if that's less work, then uh, yeah, sure do that. But, you know, most of the time it is just a matter of logistics. You know, a lot of guys that use layout blinds, they drive the truck out into the middle of the field, pull the blinds off, put them down, drive the truck back. That's how they're unloading. They're not packing in. They're not pulling their stuff in with a sled. You know, there's everything has trade-offs. Those nice A-frame blinds that you see. You know, there's there's pros and cons to that. They're not small and they're not light to get in. You still have to build them. You still have to brush them in. They're just giving you a framework. Literally, it's a frame. And you're paying three, four, five hundred dollars for a frame. Now, that could be worth it. That could be the right option for, for certain people in certain situations and circumstances. But guys, don't look at this stuff as if this is going to be the thing. That's going to make the difference. That would make, the, you know, if we had that, we would kill ducks. Nope. Wouldn't make a big difference. Would not. Even if it's the right tool for the way you hunt, it still would not make a big difference over you getting there and you cobbling something together and you jerry-rigging something on site and you making coming up with your own hide or you getting some mesh and some sticks and putting something together. It would not make a big difference. It may make some difference, but it's not going to be the thing that's game-changing. Chances are that is not, if you your money invested there is not going to make the biggest difference for you being effective. Now, you may reach a point and be in a situation where, you know, that little extra bit, that's the lowest hole in the bucket, and, you know, that would help you. But you're probably not a new hunter. You've probably been around for a while. You've worked in other skills. Uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this. I don't know, but I'm going to say it. I don't care. You know, most people, most duck hunters, most goose hunters, most bird hunters of any kind, they would be way better off if they would stop buying hunting gear, take their money, and start buying rounds of sporting clays. And go, you know, twice a month, all summer and early fall to the sporting clay range and spend, you know, 100 bucks a day or whatever it is where you are and you know, shoot around of a hundred sporting clays because the number one thing that's going to improve your ability to hunt is practice. And that's the last thing most people want to do. They would rather just spend money on stuff and the stuff makes the difference and the stuff is going to make them a better hunter and the stuff is going to be game changing. And the biggest thing you can do is practice nothing you can buy is going to take the, the place of practice. But marketing or hunting companies know, hey, if we can make people feel like our product will make them a better hunter, they'll buy our product. And of course, they're in the business of selling you their product. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now, as someone who likes products and who likes gear and who really enjoys the process of buying and using quality gear, you know, I'm telling you that practice matters more. All right. Practice matters more. You are better off investing in practice. 
than you are in gear. In fact, most people would be better not buying a better shotgun, not buying better ammo, but going and get some practice and spending that money shooting sporting clays. Sporting clays are probably the best way to practice that I know of. You go in, they take you to 10, 20, 30 different positions and stations, and they throw clay targets at you from all different angles, speeds, altitudes, combinations, just, and you got to try to shoot them down. You don't know where they're coming from sometimes or how many are coming out. And it's just like with duck hunting. There's so many different angles and directions and distances, and you learn what you can hit, what you can't hit, how far you can shoot, how far you can't shoot, how you've got to be able to point and shoot and do different things. It's a skill set that you develop that you have to learn. And, you know, nothing can take that place. You know, if you do a round of sporting clays and, and you score 10 out of 100, you know, the best thing you can do is do another round of sporting clays because that means you're going to shoot, you're going to down one out of 10 ducks and and that's not enough. You know, if you, if you get to 20 out of 100, you need to do more sporting clays. You have not reached a point where gear is your limitation. All right? You need to practice. You need to do better. You know, ideally on a sporting clays course, you ought to be able to reach the point where you are hitting more than you're missing. All right, you're 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 over 50%. I consider that to be about the benchmark of of, you know, what is that first benchmark you should be looking for to say I'm a decent shot. Um, you know, I I am ready and prepared for the average hunting shot and situation. That would be the level. All right, if you're shooting 50% now, of course there are different courses. Some are harder than others. You know, if you go to a world-class course, a very high difficulty level, well, you know, you have to consider that. You have to put a handicap in the place, whatever. But on average, you want to think, I ought to be able to hit 50% of the birds. And so that is a great thing to strive for. That's a number. That's numeric. That's a skill. That's practice. That's something you can work towards as opposed to buying stuff and being sucked into marketing whatever it is. So when it comes to those blinds, it took me a while to get there, but when it comes to all the different blinds you can buy, yeah, some of them are going to be helpful sometimes, but don't feel like I need to pour my money into this and sacrifice to get this because it's going to make the difference. It may help a little and there may be a time when that's something you should get, but you're better off making sure that you're proficient shooting before you worry so much about buying some of this high-end gear. All right, so next marketing quagmire, waders. Oh, man, waders. Every kind of waders out there. You go to Amazon, you go to Cabela's, you go to Academy, you go to Shields, wherever you go, whatever stores you have in your area, you go to their website, you go to their stores, and you got waders out the wazoo. Everybody's got waders Everybody claims theirs are the best. They, they've tout all these features. They got this many grams of Thinsulate. They don't tell you that that's only around your toes and it covers like one-eighth of your foot. They don't give you those details. They just tell you that it's there. They, they, they boast that, you know, they're this, you know, millimeters of neoprene, but they don't tell you that the boots are made out of plastic and there's no insulation other than where the toes are. And that the seams are going to tear within five to ten times wearing them in the water and dry rotting. They're not going to tell you that. They're going to tell you that they're breathable. And that, you know, they evaporate moisture and keep you dry and they're lightweight. But they're not going to tell you that they're only one layer construction. And the first thing you rub up against is going to tear a hole in them. You know, I was in the waiter market a few years back. And just, just really deep diving trying to figure this out. And uh, the recurring theme that I noticed was the reviews on waiters. They were all bad. Basically, all of them. For every type and every brand, if you had anywhere where there was more than a couple dozen, it was like three stars was good. It's like they're just made to fail. That's just what they do. And the only waiters that, that had good reviews 
were ones that aren't necessarily made for hunting or that aren't made for people that hunt much and they've only ever worn them once or twice and they're super cheap and they review them within the first 30 days because that's when Amazon tries to get you to review them, not a year later when they break on your third hunt. And they look like they have positives, but if you read through the reviews, you realize all the good reviews are people that just got them and used them once. All the bad reviews are people that have used them half a dozen times and they've worn out and broken. And so you, you slowly start to realize, ah, these are all junk. I mean, the vast majority of the waiter mark, and they got all sorts of frills. And you got little whistles and waterproof pockets and insulation liners and, you know, all of these fancy things. But if the waiter breaks, none of it matters. I remember I was asking Riley a few years ago. I said, hey, so what's the best kind of waiters? He said, ones that keep you dry. I was like, okay. Well, that's, that's the bottom line. Nothing matters more than that. Keeping you dry and then keeping you warm. So you really need to be careful with waiter marketing. Um, I worked through all of it and I eventually ended up landing on getting high and dry waiters because they're essentially a commercial waiter that has been painted for hunting. They develop these waders for use for commercial water work, people on oyster farms and things like that that are wearing waders 300 days a year. And they built them for that to not wear out, to not break every other week. And then they, they adapted them for the hunting. They costed a bit more. Of course, they are not a sponsor, if that's what you're thinking. They pay me nothing. Uh, I wish they would. But... They have been what so far what I have found to be the best waiters on the market uh, for the price, but they're not cheap. However, I just, you know, I've had one pair now, just finished my, well, I didn't just finish, but I made it through two full hunting seasons of ducks and geese, early season, middle season, and late season, and have never had a problem with them, have never had an issue, never had a drop of water go through them. They're still in outstanding shape and condition. I reached out to the guys. I mean, yeah, I, I had looked at everything on the market that I could find. I said, here's what I'm looking for. Under these conditions, hunting this much every year, I'm looking for a pair of waders that'll last five years. And they said, under those conditions and hunting that many times a year, ours should absolutely last that long or longer if you take care of them. And so far, we're on track. Three more years to go. I'll let you know how it turns out. Look out for that episode. But you want to look for waiters that are going to last, that are built for quality, that are built to last. They're the strongest, most durable. Prioritize those features above anything else. And nothing else matters compared to durability and to some degree warmth and... Uh, the quality of the boot. And you got all the other clothing and gear and coats and pants and Gore-Tex and headwear and everything else that, that comes along with it. And uh, interestingly enough, I actually find this to be one of those areas where the marketing's not that bad. Um, when it comes to clothing, when it comes to outerwear, you look at quality brands... You look at what you're getting, what you're paying for. Most of the time, the marketing here is not that bad. They're, the biggest gap here is in people's understanding. You have to know, well, you have to get to get to know and learn the hunting garment industry. You need to learn what, what the different layers are, what they mean, what the materials are. Now, I did episodes in the past on podcasts about insulation. Um, for different things about you know how to pick a pair of bibs and, and other things that you can apply to a great many pursuits including waterfowl hunting but for the most part you got layers you got barriers you got things that are moisture wicking things that keep out wind and water um, to me the marketing for the clothing piece of it once you learn the materials once you learn the different types of garments and what they're made out of, um, to me, this is actually one of the easier parts to navigate. Now, of course, you got super high-end stuff. You got high-end brands. 
like Sitka and First Light and others that make really good quality stuff. And it's also expensive. And it's probably not where you're going to start. People say, I cannot understand how anyone would ever pay $300 for a hunting coat. Yeah, I can. Now, when I first started, I couldn't. I couldn't understand that. I couldn't see that. To me, that sounded crazy. But after hunting for years, I now realize, oh, yeah, I understand why that coat costs $300 and it's not a ripoff. Um, maybe I can't, couldn't have afforded it back then because I needed everything and my budget was nothing. But now I'm looking at it like, okay, well, yeah, of course. It's got a Gore-Tex liner. It's going to keep me dry in torrential rain. It has... Uh, you know, synthetic insulation that's going to maintain its ability to keep me warm. Even if it gets soaking wet, it's got moisture wicking properties that are going to evaporate moisture, keep it off of you. It's got zippers and seams that are water resistant. So water is not going to find a way to seep through there in the pouring rain because of the high quality of the fibers and the fabrics and materials used. It's relatively light it fits good. It may have adjustments built into it. On and on and on. And I'm like, yeah, I, I understand now why that uh, why that's better than my forty dollar coat that I got at you know the big box store. Um, you know, but it, to me, the marketing's not deceptive when it comes to garments. You may not understand why it costs money. You may not understand why certain things are desirable or more helpful or more effective. You might not know why merino wool costs more and is so much better than almost anything on the market for certain things, not everything, but for certain things, you know, and you just, I can't give you all that in this episode, but I don't find the marketing to be a big issue when it comes to garments. It's just the understanding of what the garments are made of to understand why they cost what they cost. Then you've got decoys and decoy marketing is pretty crazy. However, I don't feel like the decoy side of it is deceptive per se. Um, you know, you have decoys that cost $55 a dozen, and then you got decoys that cost $300 a dozen. Well, what makes the better ones cost more? Well, just they're a little better. They're a little more realistic. Maybe they're a little lighter. They're a little this, they're a little more of that. You just, you're looking, you're paying more to get the best of the best. That said, are they going to perform better than the $50 ones? By just a little. You're paying a lot for a couple more percent improvement. To some people, it's worth it. That's the, that, that may be the lowest hole in their bucket. They may have plugged every other hole. They may have filled every other need. Maybe they've been waterfowl hunting for 20 years. They have all the best gear for the way they hunt. They've got everything else. And now upgrading their decoys to just get a couple percent more realism to them is worth it. Great. For anybody else, you don't need it. $55 a dozen decoys, the $65 a dozen decoys is going to be all you need to get started. And for most people, all they need to hunt their whole lives, you know, they, they work just fine. If they get dinged up, if they get worn out, you can replace them or you pitch that one. Buy some more that are cheap, but get them by the dozen. Um, so I don't feel like there's deceptive marketing so much with decoys. It's, it's sort of, you know, of course you do have lots of them that are overpriced. You do. You really got to shop around. You got to look around. But for the most part, look at the decoy. Look at a picture of a duck. Does the decoy look like a duck? If the decoy looks like a duck, check. All right. What's the quality of the decoy? You know, is it going to wear out? Is it going to, is the paint going to rub off the first time you pick it up? That's quality matters. Check. What's the construction? Some decoys are hollow. Some are foam filled. People like certain ones for certain things. I personally like the hollow decoys because they're lighter and I'm carrying my decoys in too often. The foam ones I think are better, but better for the reason is because you put bullet holes in them. They're not going to fill up with water. I don't tend to shoot my decoys, but even if I do, I can patch them or if they sink, whatever. I'm using cheap decoys. I'd rather replace one or two every couple years and have lighter decoys because I'm carrying. Now, if I was boating in or if I was able to drive to my spot or if I'm able to leave the decoys in the blind because it's private land, 
well, then I would probably change my tune on that. But for me, because I'm carrying them, I want lighter. I also want cheap, but I do want durable. So those are the trade-offs that I'm, I'm weighing. You may weigh different ones differently, which is great. Um, but I don't find the marketing to be so bad. You just need to understand the different pieces of a decoy in order to make a decision for what's best for you. Now, our last one we're going to do today on this episode, which is maybe the craziest one of all, and that is calls. Duck calls. Now, ammo, I think, is the most deceptive. I do. But I think calls are the craziest. There are so many duck calls, and anybody can make a duck call. And you got all kinds of calls. You got calls from big companies, small companies, medium-sized companies, single individuals. You've got the biggest of the biggest of the big, and you have literally the guy that makes a dozen calls a year, uh, sells them for 20 bucks a piece, and you got the guy that makes 10 calls a year, but they're ultra high-end premium, and he sells them for hundreds of dollars a piece. How do you navigate duck calls? Well, guys, you know, I'm not very sophisticated in this area. Um, I am not. I want a duck call to do two things. I want it to sound like a duck, and I want it to work. That's it. Those are my big ones. I want it to sound like a duck, and I want it to work. Pretty much, I don't really care about anything else. I am not a musician. I'm not a sophisticated caller. I quack. I hail. I may do a feeding chuckle. Um, I'm not doing much else. And you know, maybe in the future I will do a little more. But even when it comes to turkey calling, I'm not a very sophisticated caller. Less is more. Quieter is often better than louder. And you let the decoys do the work. But you know, it, it, sometimes you do need volume. Sometimes you do need some real range and power. You know, sometimes you may want to become an expert instrumentalist from the turkey call, pers- or excuse me, waterfowl call perspective. Um, so there are calls for everybody. There, there's no one size fits all. I can't tell you, well, get this call and this is the best call for you um, because your style, how you hunt, what your call philosophy is, and now probably half of you listening to this going, what's a call philosophy? Don't even worry about it. Just t- put that on the shelf. A couple years from now, you'll you'll come back around to it and, and realize, okay, you've developed an approach. You've developed a style. You've developed a philosophy, even if you don't use that word, into how you call, when you call, and what ways you call. Now, that said, I have found some calls better than others. I have. Um... I have found some cheaper calls, better than expensive calls. But then I've had, you know, some calls that are exactly worth their money. So I've talked about it before, but the first duck call I ever called a duck in with was um, one of my was uh, my first Rilo game calls, Mallard. So Riley, he's been on the show before. You've uh, he's done a couple episodes, makes some amazing stuff. But Riley, if you're listening to this. Still love those calls. So he did his his first run of, um, I don't remember the exact line of calls. Then he came out with a new line that was better, more improved, and cheaper. Imagine that. Got one of those. That has become my new favorite call. Because the range, the depth of the quack, and the easiness to blow. Oh, and it works every time. I have bought more expensive, high-end brand name calls you know, made out of plastic and other things that are supposed to be, you know, the cat's meow. And they work good. I have called in ducks with them. But they're never been as reliable as the ones that Riley makes. At least the ones that I've gotten. They just, they work every time. Doesn't matter how many times I blow them. Doesn't matter how long the day is. Doesn't matter how many times I spit into them or how bad it's raining. They just work. I've gotten other higher-end calls, and I don't want to call the name of the brand because I don't want to put any brands down because every brand makes stuff that's good. At least I hope they do. Man, I even like some of the brands whose calls that I got. I'll just tell you a quick story. I bought a goose call, and I, I did a lot of research, and this was the most recommended goose call for beginners, period. It was like $18. So I bought it. Man, it was terrible. 
it was so bad. I thought I was just inept for like the first six months. I thought I'm just an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. And uh, so I'm watching videos. I'm watching tutorials. I'm doing Zoom conferences with people trying to help me learn how to call. And I'm using this thing. And like you blow it once or twice and it would sound okay. Then the third blow would just <laughs> and just go into nothing. And I couldn't figure it out. And I was like, am I an idiot? Is that really the problem? I mean, if I am, okay, how do I fix it? How do I get smarter? How do I do this better? And uh, I reached out to the company. I talked to the owner of the company. He gave me recommendations. I took pictures of the pieces after I took it apart and sent them to him. He sent me a new read and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, and by the end, it still didn't work for anything. And I thought, I have never met a call or never met a company, never talked to an owner of a company that I liked more and did everything they could do and still couldn't get this thing to work. And, uh, you know, I probably could have just asked them for a new one. But at this point, I was like, it was $18. They have spent so much of their time on this that uh, I'm just going to buy another call. So I did a little research. I got a recommendation. I bought another call. It was $40. That call is amazing. Unbelievable difference. It's so easy. It works every time. It sounds great. It's the only goose call I have only one. I've never needed to buy another one because it just works so well. I should probably have a backup, but it just works so good. I just disregarded that one that didn't work as as a lemon, as a dud. I don't want to call the name of that company because I really like the company. And it could have just been one of the $18 ones that came off the line with something wrong with it. But uh, to some degree, you get what you pay for. Uh, So my recommendation for you guys is you're going to probably have to get a couple of calls, all right? Because they're so different and they're made different ways. The first one you buy, just like I did with that goose call, may not work for you. It may not work, period, like that one did, but it may not be the best fit for you. So you get three or four calls in your hand and... You develop just, I mean, the most basic level of proficiency and ability to call from an hour of practice after watching a few YouTube videos. And you can try them all and you will be able to tell which ones you like more, which one you feel more confident with, which ones sound more like a duck. Uh, However, after being in the woods more, after spending more time hunting ducks, after hearing real ducks, I have heard ducks make sounds and with tones, and in different ways, and at different volumes that I did not ever know was possible. I have heard mallards quack so loud, so aggressively, literally to the point where, I mean, it was scary, almost like put chills down your spine, and they're on the water 300 yards away. And I'm like, how can I even hear them? How can they be so loud? How, and I, you just you you just have these moments and these and these real revelations of all the different ways that ducks can make sounds, and you know that's part of the reason why you may want to have different calls because different tones, different volumes, different everything. Um, ducks are just that way; they are not all the same. They don't all sound the same. They they can be very different. So I always go out in the woods with about I think three. I think I've got three duck calls, three mallard calls on my lanyard that I use on a regular basis. And I uh, just sort of, depending on the situation and the need and, and what I think is best for the moment, I know which one to grab for. But, um, you know, you're, you're probably going to want to get a couple different ones so that you can just learn some of those nuances. Now, there's just no way to learn other than to do. You just got to practice you got to blow them, you got to go in the woods, you got to hunt, and you got to listen. Um, but I would not recommend you buy any $100 duck calls. I haven't, um, even still. I just like, uh, that is not the lowest hole in the bucket for me. You do not need to spend that kind of money to get a great duck call. And I know that because a lot of veteran hunters, people that have hunted for 30 and 40 and 50 years, they've never bought a $100 duck call. 
They're using stuff that's way more modestly priced. Some of them they've been using for decades. And it works good. And they're, they're effective. They make duck sounds. You don't need to spend the money on super high-end premium stuff. Down the road, you may want to. Down the road, once you have everything else worked out and you learned to appreciate certain nuances, then you know what you want and what is worth the money to you. But to just say, well, I'm going to go out and buy a $100 duck call so I can be a good duck hunter. No, it doesn't work like that. Get a couple cheap calls and then go get experience and learn. You really need to be a good caller if you're going to try to invest in a really expensive call and get the value out of it. All right, it's not just about, you know, having a better call. If you're not good enough to get the value out of it, then it's not going to help you any more than the $20 call. All right. And I could keep going, guys, but I think you got the point. Um, You really need to look at what are the calls made out of? What makes them expensive? You know, there's some super polymer, ceramic super duper materials those can be great but wood has been working great for decades probably centuries wood has been just fine for the last hundred years wood has killed bajillions of ducks it just works good you know you can start with that. It's going to be fun. You may never go beyond that. You may not see any need for a ceramic call that can make a mallard screech that can be heard, you know, three miles into the stratosphere. That You may never need anything like that. It all depends on where you hunt and the way you hunt. Uh, which leads me to the last thing I want to say, and then we'll close out, and that is this. You have to understand all gear and all marketing is designed to make every product look as good as it can and sometimes better than it really is under certain conditions. You may or may not hunt under those conditions. Okay, you may or may not hunt under those conditions. So for example, a lot of the water that I hunt where I'm at in my local area You do not have places where ducks are just pouring in all morning. You don't have places that you just have big flights of birds always coming in that you're going to set up a big decoy spread. For me to invest in five dozen or ten dozen decoys makes no sense. There's usually no way to get them anywhere where there's water easily. And you just don't have that kind of bird activity. In fact, most of the birds we shoot... We get by walking and sneaking and, and just being as careful and crafty and nimble as we can, you know, just working our way through the woods, trying to sneak up on ducks and flush them and take them down because of the, we're hunting a lot of small streams. We don't have a lot of big water and the big water that we have is not places where ducks tend to tend to you know pour in like they do down south and in certain other areas where you have major flyways you know a lot of places we set up decoys you know if, if you're not getting that first flight of ducks which is going to be the only flight of ducks on their way to the water then you've done you've got nothing else to do the rest of the morning not always but many times so for me to invest in dozens of decoys and pulsators and swimmers and spinners and everything else um, is just not a great use of my money. Now, the companies are going to lead you to believe that those things are amazing and that's going to make the difference. And I believe that there are situations where they do make the difference. I've wanted to get one of those pulsator decoys now for a couple years. Every time I see one, I'm like, that could be the thing. But then I realize, how many birds do we shoot over decoys? We probably spend less time with decoys than without decoys. And and so often it's like, well, you know, actually the way that we hunt and the water that we have, you know, those things are not going to make a huge difference for us. I've got a spinner. I think I, I used it on three hunts last year. Three. Just didn't make any sense to take in on any of the other hunts based on the conditions, based on the water, based on this, that, and the other thing. 
It just didn't, just wasn't necessary to, to use for any other hunts. And I don't think we shot a single duck on days that we took the spinner out. Now, you know, is that to say that the spinner pushed the ducks away? No, there just weren't any ducks around those days. Um, not flying anyway. So you really need to look at the way you hunt. You know, if you're down south, you probably don't need Arctic level gear. All right. You just, you probably don't need it at the same time. You know, if you're hunting out of a boat, you probably don't need a layout blind. You probably don't need a lot of things that people have that are hunting on the shore. But if you're dragging all your stuff in on a sled, you probably don't need anything big, bulky and heavy. So you just need to think about how do you hunt? What are your areas and opportunities? And if you don't know, that just means you need to hunt more and realize, okay, this is, this is what would be helpful here. Don't let the marketing tell you what you need. Let the woods tell you what you need. Don't let the marketing. I realized last year I need lighter waders because I'm often backpacking my waders into places and then hunting the water and then using the waders to retrieve birds and, um, you know, big heavy neoprene waders that are five millimeters thick. They're the best waders in the world for icy, cold, frigid, middle of the winter conditions. Nothing is better than. But to carry for three or four miles into the woods on your back with everything else that you have, they're not the best tool for that. They're just heavy and bulky. And it's like, I need to get me some lighter breathables for this style of hunting. Um, so the woods told me I needed that. Marketing did not. So guys, I really appreciate you for listening. If you found this interesting, please head to iTunes, leave a five-star review with a comment. It's the number one way to help the show reach more people and affect the algorithm. Head to the website, newhuntersguide.com. Check out the show notes, links to those videos. Till next time, I really appreciate you. God bless you and go get them in the woods. <laughs>